Father, we lift up to you uh, the families of those who have fallen, those who have gone before us, even hundreds of years before us, who have laid the groundwork, who have paved the road with their own blood so that we might be free. I pray that in our generation we would not squander that freedom, but we would stand for it. We would stand against the powers of darkness and the rulers who stand in that place, who serve the enemy. We pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom in this task, but we also pray that you would help us to be mindful in the days in which we live, that we would think soberly, that we would not just give passing thoughts to the problems of the day. So, Lord, we also pray that you would bless the message as it goes forth. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the battle that these men have fought and died for It doesn't lessen our responsibility here at home or abroad to help those who are engaged in battles. I just received an email this last week of, maybe you're not familiar with it because it's not in the news too much, but what's taking place in Myanmar, formerly Burma. Uh, There was a coup uh, taken over. Uh, The president, uh, they deposed the president that was there, and it is a violent takeover, and they are killing people just indiscriminately in the streets. And this email was forwarded to me by Pastor Drew, who is a missions pastor up at Calvary Chapel Alpine. And he writes, I wanted to give you an update on what is going on in Burma. During Wednesday night Bible study, I received word from Pastor Elijah and two, that two young men, one of them my student from previous training, had traveled north to Mint to help those being persecuted heavily by the military and they were murdered by the military. Please pray for their families. We have been assisting our brothers and sisters as the Lord provides the funds. We sent offerings last week, and Pastor Elisha was able to purchase rice, cooking oil, and other necessities to help the people. I have included his recent update and some photos. Please be sensitive to posting them on social media. You jeopardize the safety of those in the photos. The most important thing that you can do for them is to constantly pray for them. We are sending more assistance today and in the days to come as the Lord provides. And this is what Pastor Elisha writes. He says, yes, we have used up all. At the moment we received funds from you, we bought rice, cooking oil, and salt. We have distributed to the four different places related to our ministry. We have distributed to more than 200 families. Many people don't have work and no food to eat. Some families eat food once a day. We also distributed Are You a Good Person? The tracks and share God's love and pray for the destitutes. I feel not good for our people are more deeply in trouble But at the same time, I'm very glad that we have a privilege of helping the desperate need of others through your helping hand. Our heartfelt thanks goes to all the helping hands God has been using. According to my observation, taking photos can cause many problems. It is not free at the same time. We need to be careful. Only when the situation permits, we take pictures. But we will send you even more for accountability if we can take some more but we have to know that it can be a stumbling block for God's service as well and it is impossible for us to help all who need help so we will continue to supply only who are really without food we look carefully 
and desperate, needy families in each field because we want to use the resources God gives us, precious as possible. And Drew goes on to say, At this time, we especially want to help our brothers and the people in Mint as much as we can because they are desperately in need of help. May the Lord continue to bless you all for his kingdom's sake. This is also given the opportunity to share Christ with everyone that they minister the food to. You can see in some of the photos there are the good person tracts that have been translated and thousands have been printed. People are seeing that Christ is the only hope for them. And so, uh, you know, I'm going to pray about what we should do as a church, sending something over there. Because, you know, the first century church, this is exactly what was taking place. Where Paul says they wanted to receive an offering and set it aside on the first day of every week. So that when Paul came to receive the offering, it could be sent to Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem was coming under persecution and people were being killed. And Paul the apostle was one of them who was doing that. And so um, just be praying about that, how we should assist. Now, that's what's happening in Burma, in Myanmar over there. And we know what the soldiers have done for, for us on this Memorial Day weekend. But also there are battles here at home, although they are not as intense. They could get intense. There is this woman, young woman, Elizabeth Turner of Hillsdale High School. She's a valedictorian. Uh, she wanted to include God in her valedictorian address, and she was told not to. And this is what she wanted to include. She said, for me, my future hope is found in my relationship with Christ by trusting in him and choosing to live a life dedicated to bringing his kingdom glory. I can be confident that I am living a life with purpose and meaning. My identity is found by what God says and who I want to become is laid out in Scripture. And the principal, Amy Goldsmith of Hillsdale High School, she responded to Elizabeth's um, speech that she wanted to give because it had to be approved ahead of time, so she had to submit it. This is what she writes. You are representing the school in the speech, not using the podium as your public forum. We need to be mindful about the inclusion of religious aspects. These are strong beliefs, but they are not appropriate for a speech in a public school setting. I know this will frustrate you, but we have to be mindful of it. And so free speech really doesn't apply in a school setting. But there was a letter, a nasty gram sent in a nice way. And they recanted. And the principal was not there at the meeting. But the superintendent was there. The superintendent made no mention that what the principal had done was wrong. They just simply said, you can go ahead and use the speech. So that's a, a small battle that has been waged. Now we have those battles as well. I, I just want to make sure that we think soberly about the times in which we live, that we don't get so wrapped up in what we're doing and our little problems that we forget what we're supposed to be doing as believers and just giving the gospel and knowing doctrine and praying for the people who are out there. And so that's our task. Now Paul he was waging this battle with Timothy, and Timothy was instructed to stop certain men from teaching false doctrines. They were devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promoted controversies out there, and Paul wanted this to stop. And the work, which is by faith, was to simply, like I said, give the gospel. And this is told to us in John chapter 6 verse 29 where Jesus says the work of God is this to believe in the one whom he has sent 
And so it's our job to propose to people that Jesus Christ is the one that God has sent and we need to trust in him. And by doing so, we need to make sure that we're equipped, that we know God's will, that we know doctrine, and we experience fellowship. Without those three things, we're going to be weak and ineffective. And so those people who have separated themselves in fellowship or from fellowship, they're not growing at all. That's necessary for us to have facial interaction, so to speak, communication and and talking back and forth the conversation now paul went on to say as we covered last week the goal of this command is love which comes from a pure heart a good conscience and sincere faith those three things have to be the basis for why we act or why we say we're acting in love if we don't have those three things we're really operating out of selfish motives now he was also going on to talk about how there were these believers or people who purported to become believers that were Jews and they came into the church at Ephesus and it said, and Paul says that in verse 7 they want to be teachers of the law but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm and they were teaching just like in Galatians that I covered previously that you keep the law and you accept Jesus Christ and everything is going to be fine and these false teachers have always been around in the church from the first century until now and we know that their their actions will be manifest by what they do and this is something that we have to pay attention to if we see someone on the internet if we see someone on television if we go to a church we hear somebody talking usually they will promote destructive heresies they will deny christ as lord their behavior is shameful and will cause harm to christianity they will be greedy and they will exploit exploit others with lies in order to make a profit and that's one of the big things the money the money aspect if some pastor or some ministry is always focused on money then that's going to be a sure sign that it's probably a false teacher these false teachers also they scatter the flock as according to jeremiah 23 verse 2 they lead people astray also in jeremiah chapter 50 verse 6 they prey upon the flock instead of feeding it then also they are hired workers who forsake the sheep if they see problems coming they just exit and they provide no warning when danger is afoot uh, for instance in isaiah chapter 56 it talks about these false shepherds it says israel's watchmen are blind they all lack knowledge they are all mute dogs they cannot bark they lie around and dream they love sleep they are dogs with mighty appetites they never have enough they are shepherds who lack understanding they all turn to their own way each seeks his own gain come each one cries let me get wine let us drink our fill of beer and tomorrow will be like today or even far better and those were the false shepherds who were leading Israel so if you have that same thing today in the church you know that the person is a false teacher now some of the characteristics of false teachers that I want to line out for you there's about uh, what six or seven of them that I have here the first one is they are greedy Isaiah chapter 56 talks about this that I just read about also they desire to be wealthy or they think that being wealthy is to be godly they equate the two that if they have enough money or they're blessed with a lot of money then god has blessed them and therefore they are godly which is not true at all money is deceitful Uh, they have no problem gaining money dishonestly you know there are individuals that work their way into 
widows' homes or weak-willed women, women that are all alone, and they convince them, look, when you die, just go ahead and, and bequeath everything to the church because it's God's will that the ministry grows. And if you just go ahead and do this, if somebody wants to do that on their own, that's wonderful. But for people to go in from house to house and convince others to do this i I think that that is sinful behavior and they exploit others to make profit according to second peter chapter 2 and verse 3 and of course that's just a little bit opposite to matthew 5 42 give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you instead the pastors or these false teachers go out and they try to bring in all the money for themselves and if somebody asks for money or asks for help They probably are a little resistant to do so because they're building their kingdom. It also says that they are, secondly, hypocritical liars. Uh, Their consciences have been seared and will eventually get there in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. They don't have a problem with lying. They deceive the masses which are out there. They even follow deceiving spirits. And then they harm the flock, as I previously mentioned. They prey upon the flock. They lead the flock astray and they forsake the sheep and then thirdly their teaching is corrupt they teach destructive heresies false doctrines doctrines of demons they love myths and not the truth they speak of things which are meaningless and they don't follow uh, the latest craze or they shouldn't follow the latest craze but they do whatever comes along i don't know if you guys remember in the late 80s and i think early 90s the toronto blessing which was out there it was the new thing that god's spirit is moving and then the health wealth and prosperity doctrine which was out there that that's the new thing god wants you to be healthy he wants you to be wealthy he wants you to be prosperous all of these were johnny come lately doctrines i remember talking to my pastor about some of these things once and he said you know it's going to come and it's going to go the thing that remains is god's word and we just want to follow that and fourthly these false teachers they're self-focused they love to sleep and eat that's what they do they, they kind of minister on sunday morning or during the week and they're just concerned about themselves second peter chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 says But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over their head and their destruction has not been sleeping so they care more about themselves than they care about others they're also controlling you know there have been cults in the past and churches that will interfere with relationships they will tell people well who you can marry and who you can't marry one was um, the reverend sung young moon i don't know if you're familiar with him and his particular church but he would have mass weddings where he would assign people uh, to get married and also the church of christ is kind of controlling like that at least the boston movement was they could tell you what you could do where you could go what you should spend your money on how often you should come to church when you should meet with a discipler they were into that and i consider people in the church of christ uh, believers but they were certainly abusing uh, their positions that god had given to them they seek to change lifestyles where people would abstain from certain foods like it's sinful to eat 
uh, foods that are prohibited in the Old Testament. There is rebellion against authority and they deny the lordship of Christ. All of these things, they, they want to control the circumstances around uh, them and around the ministry that they possess. And it's this idea that we have to recognize that a, a uh, cult or those who have cultish tendencies, they want to control information. They want to make sure that people don't say what they shouldn't say. That people, uh, they're controlling their finances, the people of the church. They want to do that. They want to control the behavior. So it's financial, behavioral, and informational control. That's the characteristics of a cult. And then they teach falsely. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 says, The Spirit clearly says, And in the latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. In chapter 6, verse 3 of that same book, if anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited. In Second Peter 2.1, uh, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. In Titus 1.11, teaching things that ought not to be taught or they ought not to teach and for the sake of dishonest gain. So those are false teachers. Paul is warning Timothy about these guys. They are in the church. And we want to make sure we are recognizing who they are and given the opportunity with gentleness and respect, we want to make sure we call them out and say, no, these people ought not to be teaching in the church these doctrines of demons, the false doctrines, the destructive heresies, and teaching what they ought not to teach. Now, what about these doctrines of demons? Are those doctrines of demons around today? Well, Second Peter 2.17 says, about false teachers. These men are springs without water, mist driven by storms, black as darkness is reserved for them, for they mouth empty boastful words and by appealing to the lustful desires of the sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. Now, this uh, next month here, do you know what this next month is? June, Gay Pride Month. All over San Diego, you are going, I, I've been listening to it on the radio. They're throwing concerts. They're raising money for the gay pride. And the phrase is, you can't stop pride. And they consider themselves to be a persecuted class, just like uh, certain races are a persecuted class. And I don't know when behavior became a persecuted class, but the Lord told us that we are to be aware of this. Now, there are churches that promote and embrace homosexuality now this is one of the two verboten subjects that you don't want to talk about you know what the other one is it's abortion abortion and homosexuality if you talk about those things you deserve to be canceled you shouldn't say anything anymore but there are churches that promote the homosexual lifestyle and that is what is appealing to the lustful desires of the human nature and pastors in the churches that are teaching that are appealing to the lustful desires of the fallen human nature, saying this is okay. As long as you love each other and you're monogamous, you can have this inside the church. This is blasphemous. That is not what the scripture says. Now, it, it's job of any minister to point out where in society or in the behavior of the church when things are going wrong and sometimes you don't use very strong language and sometimes you use strong language in this particular case you can use the strongest language you would like 
but not attacking the individual who Christ wants to save, but you attack the idea that is promoted that homosexuality is okay or the transgenderism that they you know they want to change the gender of children and it is just it's a travesty that is out there it is a tragic end to a great society if we continue down this road that's exactly what will happen to us we will end so again these characteristics this is something that has transpired the homosexual movement over my lifetime before it used to be something that was accursed you wouldn't talk about it it was always in secret and of course all the media uh, that is out there and all the leaders on social media that are out there now and the big techs and the big corporations are all pushing this and it's our job to just say no this is wrong and we can call it wrong we don't have to be abrasive in it just say you know god says that this is incorrect and i don't know how they were so successful at taking something that is a behavior. And remember 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and Galatians chapter 5, they talk about these works that will prevent somebody from getting into heaven, and that is one of them, somebody who says they believe in God, but yet they practice and embrace these things. But how did they take that particular behavior and not equate it with alcoholism and greed and murder because they're all in the same category? It would be like promoting somebody who is an alcoholic and saying, you know, it's just their lifestyle. They were born this way and they really can't change it. And and the Lord would say no. Or the person who is a thief, well, you know, it's just who they are. It's in their nature. They want to steal. They were born this way. Or somebody who is greedy, well, they take people's money, but, you know, they can't really change that. They were born this way. And the person who says, well, gays are born that way, I don't disagree with them. And if they want to say it's in the genetics, I would say it doesn't matter to me. We're all born with the sinful nature. Some have the propensity to homosexuality. Some have the propensity to lying. Some have the propensity to drunkenness. Some have the propensity to disrespect their parents. It's, it's all sinful behavior. And God asks us to change our behavior. Not that our proclivities don't lean in that direction. We want to do that which is sinful. Don't we? I mean, just drive around town. You, you, I was talking to the youth. Uh, these twins that are in there, <clears throat> they're getting their license and they're driving around town and their eyes get real wide to the people who, who are bad drivers at intersections. They can't believe it, how bad they are and how they break the law. And go figure, we just want to break the law. That's our natural bent. We want to do what satisfies us in the flesh. But God says, no, turn away from those things. Call what is wrong, wrong, and promote what is right or correct or lawful. So that's what we are supposed to do. And false teachers will do just the opposite. They will lead people down the wrong road. And these examples that I've given you, the health, wealth, and prosperity teaching, which is so bad, we want to lead people away from that, saying, no, that's not what God wants us to teach. You know, the health, wealth, and prosperity doctrine is only taught in first world countries. If you go to the third world countries, God wants you to be rich. Rich in what? Sometimes they don't have anything but the clothes on their back, and they don't even have shoes to wear. And so it only works here, and it's used as a ruse to get something or to fleece the sheep, so to speak. Then there is um, those who would deceive. They try to deceive, you know, like Bethel Church, they had the gold dust coming down 
I don't know if you saw that in 2011 and, and they would video it. It's on YouTube and this dust is falling down. It's like glitter. And then in 2009, there was another church in Fort Lauderdale where diamonds, quote, diamonds were showing up in the hands of people and they would show pictures of these little diamonds in the hands of people. <clears throat> now, I have been gullible in the past, <clears throat> but I don't think diamonds are going to just appear in people's hands. Now, if there's diamonds and gold coming into the church service, what does that appeal to? It appeals to the flesh. You know, the, the riches? Well, what did Jesus say to the young rich man? Go and sell all you have and give to the poor. You know, if that's your problem is riches and silver and all that's going to be destroyed, it is an appeal to the flesh when those things take place. And that is a doctrine of a demon. And so we want to make sure that if those things are going on, we tell people, no, it's a false doctrine. We want to make sure we remain in God's word and, and go with what is the true doctrine. And remember, whenever there is, quote unquote, a miracle taking place or a sign or a wonder, if we have something like that and we recognize it as such, they are always used to confirm God's word. That's the point. It's not so that you can become rich and prosperous. Like, for instance, in Mark chapter 16, verse 20, it says, Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. Acts chapter 14, verse 3. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders in Hebrews chapter 2 verses 3 and 4 it says his salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him God also testified to it by signs wonders and various miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will so that's the reason for a miracle if you happen to be somewhere and a miracle happens praise the Lord but we want to make sure Thank you. We want to make sure that we are able to point to the testimony that would come afterwards or the testimony that would be before. You would give a word of some kind and then a miracle takes place. And somebody, and I've seen this before, where somebody, they would, uh, Mike McIntosh had this happen. He gave the word down in uh, Mexico and prayed for a little girl and she was deaf and then she could hear. Uh, after you prayed for her. you know so there are things like that taking place and sometimes miracles don't happen because we lack faith that type of thing but the sign or the miracle is given to buttress what the word is and that's how God operates now going on in verse 8 verse 8 says in first Timothy chapter 1 we know that the law is good if one uses it properly we also know that the law is not made for the righteous but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly, the sinful, the unholy, and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. So this phrase in Verse 8, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. Now, he gives a list of how it can be used against certain behaviors, right? 
If you look down again, it says for lawbreakers and rebels, ungodly, sinful, unholy, irreligious, and the, the list continues there. When somebody says that the law is good, if it's, they just say if it's used properly. Now, you've, I'm sure you've heard that of socialism too. It just has to be used properly and it will work for everybody. They are misconstruing the meaning of the phrase, if the law is used properly, it will be good. And they take the whole law in the Old Testament and they say, see, if you just install all this, everything will be fine. There is this uh, movement called theonomy where you would take the law of the Old Testament and you would stall that in civil governments for our day and age. I want to remind everybody that the law that was given in the Old Testament was for the Jewish people. And so when it comes to the law, you have to also understand there were three sections to the Old Testament law. There was the moral law, like the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven image. You shall not take God's name in vain. You get the idea. It's a moral law which is there. Then there's the civil law. Like, for instance, if you owned a bull and the bull was pinned up and the bull got out and injured somebody, there was a rule for what was supposed to happen to that in Exodus chapter 21. Or also, if somebody caused injury to somebody else, you ever hear the phrase, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, bruise for a bruise, all of that, that that simply means that the punishment for an injury or a crime committed needs to equal the offense. Not be greater, not be lesser, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That's what was being communicated there. That is also in Exodus chapter 21 and verses 23 through 25. It goes on to say burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. So equity, I know that's a buzzword today, but equity in punishment from an offense that is committed or what about if a thief is killed when he breaks into your home at night in exodus chapter 22 it says you can kill the guy if he comes in and it's okay but if it happens during the day you may not kill the person if he breaks into your house and so that's a civil law which is there and those things are still good today somebody breaks in your house by the way did you see the uh, article the stand your ground law, I think it happened in Alabama. A guy came in with an automatic rifle and he went to a home of a woman and she was 87-year-old grandmother and he broke down the door and shot her, killed her. The whole apartment complex that was there, they knew what had happened and there was a guy, I don't know if he's on the first story or second story, but he pulled out his rifle with a scope on it and he shot the perpetrator. He saw that he was going around with this automatic weapon, firing into apartments or condos, whatever they were. And so this hunter pulled out his gun and he took him out. That's part of the stand your ground law. The whole complex got together and gave him a plaque for saving lives, which were there. Of course, he's not being prosecuted. I hope they're not looking into bringing charges eventually against him but that's civil law which is out there and these things are good the guy probably saved numerous lives of somebody who is going to go out and kill and then there's the ceremonial law so we have the moral law we have the civil law and we have the ceremonial law ceremonial law it dictates what the priests are supposed to wear 
for instance, the blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and the ephod for the high priest and the turban that he had on and the pomegranates around the bottom of the uh, garment that he had on and the undergarments. All of that is a ceremonial law. Or the sin offering, how the sin offering is supposed to be given or the wave offering or the fellowship offering or what was supposed to take place on the Day of Atonement and what the scapegoat was. All that's the ceremonial law. So if if a person takes this phrase to mean that you simply have to implement the Old Testament law in its entirety and that that is a good thing, they are incorrect and they are false teachers teaching false doctrine. Now, if somebody wants to commemorate Old Testament feasts, by all means, go ahead and do it. But if you are saying that you have to do this because this is pleasing to God or it makes one more holy or more of a devout Christian, that is false teaching. We do not have to keep the ceremonial law. But should we keep the moral law and the civil law? Well, as best we can, that's what we want to have installed in our legislatures. Now, not everything is going to be installed the way it was in the Old Testament. Like, for instance, if somebody committed adultery, you know what the penalty was in the Old Testament? Stone them. Get a big rock and bust their head open. That was the case in the Old Testament. I, I don't know that I advocate that today, but you know, it, it, some people would say, well, how dare you say that is God's law not uh, applicable when it comes to morality and the civil uh, laws that are out there? Does not, not, does not that uh, comport or equal a good society? I'm not going to get into the legal aspects of all of that, but certainly the ceremonial law uh, you don't eat your shellfish out there. You can't do that either. If somebody is coming along and saying that's what you have to do, that is false teaching. And this is unsound doctrine. Now, going on here, uh, what is unsound teaching or false doctrine and what will it get you? Uh, unsound teaching or false doctrine it actually works against what Scripture has to say. Speaking directly against maybe a commandment of God in the Old or New Testament as far as morality is concerned, like I just mentioned, homosexuality, that type of thing. And there are contemporary examples of false teachers and false doctrines which are out there and some people who would promote this idea that you have to keep the old testament law if you're following that old testament law then it is going to go well for the people but more laws don't make people more righteous and you've heard me mention that before Uh, how many traffic laws do we get passed every year well you i'm sure you've broken them or Uh, maybe a new tax law is out there and you're not aware of that all that new laws do is make more law breakers Uh, it doesn't make people righteous it doesn't force them to do that which is right and jesus came along and said there are two there are two laws love your neighbor love god and love your neighbor as yourself if you follow those then that's great but the more laws you make the more lawbreakers are going to be made. And all it does is make people guilty and constantly brings friction out there. What do you mean that's a law that I, I can't break? You know, simple things. There was somebody, we were out front one time, and a person was coming down the opposite way, and I just did this, uh, this yesterday. I pulled up out here and I pulled to this side, coming straight on the other side of the road. You know that'll get you a ticket. 
I confess I was a lawbreaker. I pulled over and I talked. Well, there was a police officer, a sheriff, that was coming up this way and saw somebody a couple years ago do that same thing, started to get out of the car and was going to write a ticket. And the guy turns to him and goes, Oh, come on, I'm standing right... Because you ought not to be parking on that side of it. You know, little things like that that cause us to be lawbreakers all the time. And there's so many laws which we could end up breaking. And so having more laws is not going to make us more righteous, especially keeping a ceremonial law. And by the way, all the ceremonial laws are contingent on there being either a tabernacle or a temple. You have to have the tabernacle or the temple. If you don't have that, all of the sacrifices are meaningless. That's where God declares that type of worship under the law is supposed to take place. And of course, they have made up things to um, circumvent that. Like, well, instead of bringing a sacrifice, just bring a sacrifice of money. Uh, That's what they promote in the Jewish religion. And do a good deed, you know, that type of thing. And of course, all of these things are false. And, And by the way, as I'm talking like this, there are so many things that we should not do, so many things that teachers should not teach. And we also need to focus on what God wants us to do and the blessings from following what he wants us to do. The problem is with humanity, from little children on up, you don't have to teach a child to be bad. You don't have to do that. You have to teach the children to be good. You don't have to instruct the adults to be bad. You have to instruct the adults to be good. It's just the bent that we want to be evil that God says, I have a remedy for that. And the remedy is his Holy Spirit. And he helps us to conform to his image. And it's a difficult road to walk, but... He's able to help us with it. Now, Paul is thankful here in the mercy that was shown to him. In verse 12, he says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And so Paul, by his own admission, was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. And I was thinking about in the Old Testament all the wonderful people that God used, that submitted to him. Moses, a murderer. King David, a murderer. If you look at the book of Judges, in the book of Judges, you had Samson. What was Samson? Sleeping with prostitutes. You know, he just creating mayhem all over the place. He, he finally carried out some judgments. And Jephthah, depending on what you believe, did he sacrifice his own daughter? Or did he not sacrifice his own daughter? That's a debate that's up in the air. We don't know what he did because God does not promote or encourage the sacrificing of your children. But you see all of these blows. Gideon started out so well and didn't do so well. Look at all the kings of Israel. You know what? Only two righteous ones in the uh, southern kingdom of Judea and in the northern kingdom. Not one of them was righteous. 
And time after time, God uses these people. Look at Abraham. Man was a liar. No, it's not my wife. It's my sister. Well, that's true, but that's a half truth. And you know, he was being deceptive. Look, look at Jacob, dirty, sneaky thief. That's what Jacob means in the Old Testament. And, and God said, I'm going to bless you with the covenant. It's going to come through you. And dirty, sneaky thief is who he chose. You know, all these different people. And Paul says, yeah, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and violent man. That means there's hope for us. And by the way, Paul was also a murderer. Remember the stoning of Stephen? He was right there with the garments. He didn't stop them. He was promoting it. And I hope none of you in here are murderers uh, that gone out and stabbed somebody in the back and they died or shot them, whatever. But there's still hope for that individual. And he focuses on this, that there is mercy, grace, faith, and love that God gave to him. Now, I am uh, not a practicing Jew, quote-unquote, but I have Jewish blood in my background. My grandfather's name was Markowitz, and I've been to Israel, and I've known several Jews. And sometimes the Jews can... I even dated a Jewish girl in high school, and sometimes the Jews can be a little obstinate. I think in the Old Testament, Moses in his writings described them as stiff-necked, that they were unwilling to bend to God's will. And, And God says... You're my people. You stiff-necked people, you're my people. And how often are we stiff-necked? We are unwilling to bow to God's will, not because we just are ignorant, but because we refuse. We say, no, I'm not doing it. You can't make me. I'm not going to go forward with what you want. Well, it's this mercy and grace and faith and love. Paul was a murderous, despotic image of a man And it was not that he did not know who Christ was. It was that he knew who Jesus claimed to be and hated him for it. It's just that wickedness on the inside. And until God, you know, I'd like to describe it like this. He's on the road to Damascus. God reaches down out of the cloud. This is my own view of it. Reaches down out of the cloud, grabs him by the neck, shakes him up like this and says, Paul, it's me that's my version again that's not in scripture but he basically knocked him to the ground there's this white light and he said paul paul why do you persecute me i think in the king james why do you kick against the goads you guys know what a goad is or a prod you know it it, yeah i remember going to a slaughterhouse and they had this um stick like a broomstick and on the end was a nail and attached to the nail was an electric cord that went to a plug-in and they would use that with the cows and get them up the chute. And, and that's what Paul was doing. He was being stuck with the prod and he would stiffen up like, you're not hurting me. You know, and that's what he would do. And we have the same propensity to do that. But even though he was this murderous, despotic image of a man, his current state that he was in was one of resting in the grace and mercy, faith and love of Jesus Christ. And that's that's where we are. He goes on to say also, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Now for years, there was a ministry on the radio. And that ministry taught that once you accepted Christ, you never had to ask forgiveness for your sins ever again. And 
every time this guy would do it, he'd say it on the radio, I'd go, no, Paul said that he was the chief of sinners. Now, I've actually looked this up before. And when, when he says that of I am the worst or I am the chief in verse 15, the way that it is delivered, it's delivered in the present tense indicative mood in the Greek. Now, what does that mean exactly? It means at that moment in time, he considered himself in the present tense, the chief of sinners as the apostle of Jesus Christ. And in the indicative mood, not something that is looked forward to or hypothetical, but he goes, no, I am right now the chief of sinners. If he is right then the chief of sinners, he commits sin right then, he needs to ask forgiveness. First John 1 9, God will forgive him. It's not that his sin was past. Now, I do believe God forgives all of our sin, past, present, and future when we get saved. But our fellowship is interrupted. But he simply declared that he was, at the present time, in the imperative mood, in the indicative mood, I should say, he was a complete sinner. He recognized it. Where this other ministry said, no, you've been forgiven all that sin. You don't have to ask forgiveness. Don't worry about your fellowship. It's not interrupted. And I think that that is just bad doctrine. It is not good doctrine. So we ourselves, we have to look at ourselves the same way. Are you currently the chief of sinners out of all the people that you know? You can say, amen, you are. And then you can say, and God forgives me whenever I ask him. And remember, it doesn't mean your salvation is taken away. It means your fellowship with the Holy Spirit is interrupted. And that's why we ask forgiveness. It's not a forgiveness for salvation. It is forgiveness for fellowship. And that's what even John in First John 1, 9 is talking about. It's this idea that we fall into sin. And Paul, remember Romans chapter 7, the end of the chapter, the things I want to do are not the things that I do. So he considered himself, Paul did, the current actual chief of sinners. Verse 16 says, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example of those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. So God decided to take the worst example that he could come up with somebody that needed salvation more than anybody else who was persecuting the church, who was killing believers, who was tracking them down, getting letters from the chief priests and bringing them into prison and putting them on trial. And he goes, that's the guy I'm going to save. That's the one. Just like King David, the murderer, Moses, the murderer, all the people in the Old Testament that were murderers and God said, I'm going to save them anyhow. And, and this is why we're supposed to look at the scripture and look at individuals that nobody is beyond salvation. Now, if you start comparing yourself to those individuals and you say, well, I'm not a murderer. I'm not an adulterer. I've never committed adultery. There is no gradation of sin when it comes to salvation. We actually have the sin nature, and even if we committed no actual sin, we still don't get to go to heaven because our nature is corrupted, and God wants to give us a new nature. So we are all guilty. We're still all under sin. So we don't want to fall into the trap of being 
well, I'm a better person than so-and-so. God wants us not to think like that. So he took the worst example at the time that he could possibly think of, which was the Apostle Paul, and he brought him this mercy. And that's what, Saul, uh, that's what Paul said. He said, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example of those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. And so verse 17, and we'll close it with this. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And this should be our reaction as well. Once we find out that God has, has unlimited mercy and unlimited grace for anyone who wants to come to him, whether it's the murderer, the homosexual, the thief, the greedy, whoever it might be, that salvation is available. All the person has to do is ask for it and say, okay, I, I recognize that I'm a sinner. I'm recognizing that I am in need of salvation and because of that, I need to receive it. Now, one final thing, and I've heard this before, there are several times there are people that think, well, I'm unworthy and I, I just, I, I can't accept it. Whenever somebody says that to me, I say, you're right. You are unworthy. I once had somebody who went into ministry I was having a conversation with and they were talking about all the blessings that they had gotten and what God was doing with them and how he was opening doors and the person turned to me and said but I'm so unworthy and I said you are right you don't deserve it and he looked at me and his eyes got wide like like I was insulting him but that's the point. We're all unworthy, and God just says, here, this is yours, eternal life. And no, you're not worthy, but you get it anyhow. And that's why Paul can say at the end, be honor and glory forever and ever. That should be our attitude, where we turn to God and say, may all honor and glory go to you for the salvation that you bring to those who don't deserve it. Let's pray. Father, we... Uh, Look to you for this grace, the mercy, the kindness, the love, the faith. For they can come from nowhere else. That which brings us fellowship with you. And we look for the day of restoration where our very natures are transformed and our bodies are designed to live forever. Help us, Lord, in the meantime to walk in a way worthy of the gospel to which we have been called but, Father, we also rest in the fact that you are a loving and forgiving God, taking the worst of individuals and changing their lives. We ask that you would do that for us today. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, please stand.